today we'll do the Haggadah. By way of introduction to the whole Seder, we say, before we begin with the questions, because the Seder night, everything is by way of question and answer, which is really the best way to learn. If so, it's one thing if someone gives a sermon, right? But we had the Shabbos, we had stumped the rabbis. Stumped the rabbis is a lot of fun, because when people come with their questions, everyone is glued, everyone is fascinated. So, okay, so how is, how is the speaker going to answer the question? You know, it's, 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 you have your attention. If the students have a question and the answer answers the question satisfactorily, then you're really learning. The problem with education today is the students are getting the best information the world has to offer. The best information. Cream of the crop. But the students are not, have no questions. The students are not interested. You can have the best information served to you on a silver platter, but if, the, if you don't have a hunger, if you don't have a need to know, when you have a question, something is bothering you, please answer me, I can't sleep, it is... And then when you get the answer, you swallow it up, you're thirsty, you, you, you digest it, you take it in. But if you have all the best information in the world, but you, you're asleep. There's no thirst. That's what the Torah is compared to water. Water only tastes good if you're thirsty. If you're thirsty, and the thirstier you are, there's nothing as precious as water. You, you haven't tasted a drop of water, you're in the desert, in Sahara Desert for three days, and someone gives you water, that water will be so tasty. But imagine if you have abundance of water, you don't care, you're not thirsty, that's tasteless, not allowed to even make a blessing. If you drink water, and you're drinking it for, for medicine, to swallow the medicine, you don't make a blessing, it has no taste. Water in itself has no taste. It, the taste is dependent on your thirst. So education is only when the student is thirsty. And the student has a question. Oh, you have a question, now I can give you an answer. But if you don't have a question just to come and give information, give information, give information, it's meaningless. And it's not only the child. The truth is the child within us. We have to discover the child within us. We have to ask that question. Even a 99-year-old Jew sits down by the Seder and starts with the introduction, his father, I'm going to ask you the four questions. Who is he talking to? His father passed away 60 years ago. Tate refers to Hashem and our father in heaven. Because when, by a Seder, every Jew feels like a child sitting in front of his father, sitting in front of Hashem. He says, When you have a question, on Pesach, we have the ability to rediscover our childlike youth. What's the, what distinguishes a child from an adult? Children, until the age of six, absorb massive amounts of information. And then we grow up, and we stop learning. Children, until the age of six, almost like in a, in a hypnotic state. They just absorb massive They're open. They're curious. Constantly asking questions, never-ending questions. And why? And why is this? And why is that? Until you lose your patience. Why? Why? But that's how children learn. And then we grow up. We stop asking questions. All the geniuses in history were those adults who never lost a childlike innocence. They asked the question that everyone else stopped asking. Newton asked, why does the apple fall? Everyone saw the apple fall. No, no one asked the question. Everyone took it for granted. Apple falls. What do you mean, why? He asked the question that no one else asked. The Einsteins of the world, the geniuses of the world, are those who don't stop learning. Don't stop being curious. So don't stop asking the questions. Don't lose that childlike innocence. And that's what Pesach, we're trying to recapture that childlike innocence and purity. That youthfulness, that zest, that zeal, that hunger for knowledge, to learn, to grow. Because that's the beginning of all spirituality. So we begin the, the Seder with the questions. And this, the Seder, the whole Seder has to be in a way of question and response. A response to a question, because that's the only real education. But before we begin the Seder, we start with an introductory paragraph, which is the introduction to the entire Seder. 
Hey Lach Ma'anya, this is the bread of poverty that our parents ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever likes, please come join us. Next year we're going to be in the land of Israel. This year we're servants. Next year we're free. So there are many questions that are asked. It's very nice you're inviting guests after you come home from the synagogue and you lock your doors <laughs> for good measure and you close your windows and you're sitting at the table. Oh, anyone who's hungry, please come join me. Really? Why don't you make the announcement in the synagogue? <laughs> there, no, no, not a word, not a breath, not even a hint. When you come home, <laughs> anyone wants to join me? What are we saying? And this year we're in this land, next year we're in the land of Israel, this year we're servants. Why is this the introduction to the entire Seder? The Rebbe explains very interestingly that when the Jew sits down by the Seder, he is troubled. Something, something, very, very, something very troublesome about the whole Seder. Something that disturbs the joy of the Seder. Here you're meant to feel free and it's if you're experiencing the freedom and redemption and you're very troubled. You're troubled. So what's the big deal? What, what are we celebrating? If Hashem took us out of Egypt, took us out of exile, why are we still in exile? If Hashem took us out of exile, why is there still poverty? When the Jews left Egypt, every single Jew was loaded with camels and with donkeys, with, with gold and silver and wealth. And here, how could, there be some, how could there be a Jew in need, a Jew in poverty, who's impoverished? And then we have four questions, and we have four sons. One of the sons is a wicked one. How could there be a wicked Jew? If God took us out of Egypt, and Hashem is eternal, everything God touches is eternal, how can God's redemption fall so short, be so not a complete redemption? How is it that we reverted back into exile? And it's such a disturbing question that when a Jew sits down to the Seder, before we even begin, how can I start the Seder? What am I pretending? I'm celebrating and I'm free. And I'm... How could there still be exile? How could there be poverty? How could there be spiritual poverty? Immaturity, poverty, spiritual poverty, superficiality. How, how this, if God took the Jews, redeemed the Jews out of Egypt, whatever God does should be eternal. So how is it? And if it's not a complete redemption, so what, what's the great celebration? Why, why are we celebrate? And this is not just a theoretical, philosophical, abstract question. It disturbs your joy. It takes away your joy. This is what the, the introduction to the Agad is coming to answer the question. He says it's true. Hey, Lach Ma'anya, this is the poor bread that our parents ate in the land of Egypt. According to the Kabbalah, according to the Arizal, the intent of exile, the first exile was meant to be the first and final exile. When God created the world, first God created the world of chaos. Then there was a crash, uh, a breakdown. And the holy sparks of the world of chaos, like take, having precious wine in a, very, in a glass, glass jug and uh, canter, and then the glass breaks and shatters and all the precious wine falls to the dirt. So because of the break of the world of chaos, all the holy sparks, these powerful sparks, fell into the earth, into the dirt, into the material, physical world. That's why we have such powerful urges towards materialism, such powerful 
desires for materialistic uh, consumption and pleasures because at the root, at the source, they come from a very high place. They come from the chaotic energy, the chaos, the world of chaos, which was a very powerfully divine, intense energy. But because the vessels were shattered, the vessels couldn't handle it, there was a breakdown, and therefore the energy shattered, and the mission of a Jew in this world is to elevate all of these sparks. How many sparks are there? There are 288 sparks. It says in the beginning of the Torah, in Genesis, that Shem created the world, and the Spirit of God hovered over the water. Well, the Torah has many layers of meaning, this code, and, and the deeper meaning, Menachefes, literally means hovers, but Menachefes is made up of two words. Reish Peiches Mes. 288 sparks died. Death, because it was a shattering, and 288 sparks fell into this world. The Jews were in Egypt. They were meant by being in Egypt. My being in Egypt for 210 years, my being in servitude for 116 years, my being in vicious and bitter servitude for 86, the last 86 years, they elevated, how many sparks did they elevate? 202 sparks. Because the Torah says, The multitude, the mixture, the multitude went up with the Jewish people and left, left with them from Egypt. Rav is, has a numerical value of 202. So they took 202 sparks with them, leaving us with a remainder 86 sparks, which is the numerical value of Elohim, which is the numerical value of Hateva, which is nature. Because God is covered up, nature aggressively covers up in the divine. And our mission in life is to uncover we are the, the undercover agents or the investigative reporters. We have to uncover God and discover the divine and godliness within the mundane, the ordinary, our daily lives by taking the material and physical world and doing a mitzvah with it and using it for holy purposes. We elevate all of the sparks. And when the Jewish people will conclude our mission of elevating all of the sparks, then Mashiach will come. That is redemption. When all of the sparks are redeemed, and that's why God sent us all over the world. We are dispersed all over the world. That's the meaning behind exile, the method behind the madness of exile. So God dispersed us throughout all the world because we have to elevate the sparks. And the moment the Jews elevated all of the sparks of a certain country, that's why the Jewish people left that country. That's why Jewish life shifted through different parts of the world. And when we swept away and we elevated all of the sparks, we finished, we completed our mission in that portion of the world, elevating the sparks. The Jewish community moved from that country, from Western Europe, moved to Eastern Europe, and now from Eastern Europe down to the lower hemisphere. That's why we were persecuted so much? That's why we were eventually, how we ended up moving around the world, why the Jewish center shifted. First it was in the land of Israel, and then we shifted to Babylonia, Iraq, and then it shifted to Western Europe and North Africa, and then it shifted to Eastern Europe, and now the center of Jewish life shifted to New York and shifted to, to, the, uh, to the lower hemisphere, the Americas, and that's the majority of the Jews live here, the wealthiest, most influential. The whole Balchuva movement started here. And now you can hardly find a Jew in Poland. There used to be two million Jews in Poland, about 500 years. Today you can hardly find a single Jew there. Because once we finished our mission, we elevated all of the sparks all of the holy sparks of Poland were already elevated, so we have no business being there. It's finished. We've done our mission there. But World War II, I, I mean, we were, we were persecuted. Yes. It's not moving in the uh, same way that you're speaking. 
Yeah, I'm not, we're not addressing the persecution. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, it, it, it's a very good question. It's an excellent question. And that needs an explanation on its own. The persecution of exile, the harshness of exile, the bitterness of exile, the pain of exile. But on a deeper level, there's something much deeper going on. On a deeper level, it's not just about punishment and pain and persecution. There's also something very positive happening. We're here to be proactive. We're here on a mission. We didn't choose to go into exile. We didn't choose to live outside of the land of Israel. God sent us into exile. But there is a method to the madness. There is a divine plan. Behind everything, there is a divine plan. And the positive that is happening, and we have to be proactive, is that we are elevated by being, by being present and by engaging and living in, in different countries. We elevate all of the sparks, all of the holy sparks. Just like the Jewish people when they were in Egypt. It says they elevated all of the sparks of Egypt. And that's why the Torah says that a Jew is prohibited from going back to the land of Egypt. A Jew is not allowed to live in the land of Egypt. Why? Because it says that the Jewish people, when they left Egypt, they emptied out the land. Like a silo that doesn't have a single grain. And like a net that doesn't have a single fish. They emptied out all the fish and all the grain. In other words, they emptied out all the holy sparks. They took out all the gold, all the silver, all the holy sparks of the land of Egypt. And since a Jew, the only reason a Jew is allowed to be outside the land of Israel is because he has a mission to fulfill, he has holy sparks to elevate. The Torah says, once the Jew has already elevated all the holy sparks, it's one of the prohibitions that you're not allowed to go back to the land of Egypt. Although the Egyptians today are not the original Egyptians. No connection to the original Egyptians. Because there was a king called Sancherib, um, like uh, 2,800 years ago, and he, he conquered the whole world. He was a Syrian king. And what he did to maintain control over the whole world was he mixed all the nations. He uprooted every nation so no one would have any affiliation with his country. And he exiled the ten tribes. He exiled the ten tribes of Israel and they're lost till today, till Mashiach comes. So... And that's what he did. It was a brilliant, brilliant concept in his idea. He uprooted all the nations and mixed them so no one should have any connection to their land so they won't rebel. They won't feel any affiliation with their land. So he uprooted the Egyptians. He uprooted everyone. So he mixed everyone up. So the Egyptians today are not really the original Egyptians. But nevertheless, the Torah says you're not allowed to return to the land of Egypt. Nothing to do with the people of Egypt. Not necessarily the original Egyptians. The land of Egypt. The land of Egypt itself. There's a prohibition for a Jew to live in the land of Egypt. Which begs the question, there were large Jewish communities in Egypt. Alexandria, Alexandria, the Talmud says, it's such a huge synagogue that they had to wave flags. They couldn't even hear the cantor. When the cantor was up front, they couldn't even hear him. They had to wave flags. Okay, now it's time to answer Amen. Now it's time to say Kedusha. They couldn't hear. Almost like an hour synagogue. <laughs> but uh, it was so huge. And Maimonides himself lived in Egypt. How could Maimonides live in Egypt? And by the way, Maimonides used to sign his letters he used to sign his own letters that uh, someone who violates three prohibitions every day. By living in Egypt, Rabbi Parchi writes in Kafta Raferach, Rabbi used to sign every letter, someone who violates three prohibitions every day by living in Egypt. So there's a whole discussion. How can Maimonides himself? So firstly, he didn't come to live. He says the prohibitions only if he's come to live. He didn't come to live. He just came to temporary, but then he became the sultan's doctor. So the sultan wouldn't let him go. He's not going to find anywhere in the world a doctor like Maimonides. So he's forced to live there. There were other rabbis who lived there, and then eventually they moved. So 
it's a very difficult issue. The Kabbalah, the Arizal explains why did God allow eventually the Jewish community to come back to Egypt? Is because the whole reason for the prohibition is because the Jews emptied out Egypt, they elevated all of the holy sparks, there were no sparks left. Therefore, the Torah prohibits them from going back to Egypt. He says, but as a result, thousand years later, as a result of the Jews doing business in the whole world, so sparks, many sparks ended up back in Egypt. So therefore, the Jews have to go back. But now there's hardly a single Jew left in Egypt, because now there's really nothing holy left in Egypt. There's no, no sparks left there. The Jews have already taken everything. As a matter of fact, it was interesting. There was a group of philanthropists who came to the Rebbe, who, who grew up in Poland, and today are billionaires, when they came to the Rebbe, they had a, a grand idea, a grand plan, a master plan. They wanted to spend hundreds of millions of dollars rebuilding the Jewish life in Poland, recreate Jewish life in Poland like before the war. So in the 80s, the 90s, and they asked the Rebbe. The Rebbe says, no. The Jews finished their mission in Poland. Finished, that's it. No going back. Encourage them either to move to France or to America, or even better yet, to move to Israel, because soon Mashiach is coming and we're going to live in Israel. The Jew finished his mission. There's a method to the madness. However it came about, that's a separate discussion. That it came about in such a painful way and because of persecution, and therefore we were forced to run and flee from place to place. I'm missing the bigger point. Yeah, yeah. But that deserves a discussion on its own. But on a deeper level, there's something much deeper going on. It's not just negative. It's also something positive that we, we are elevating the sparks, and therefore we move from place to place. But the initial intention, God's plan A was that the Jewish people in Egypt will elevate all 288 sparks. And that we're going to remain in Egypt. That's why the Torah says you're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. How many years were they in Egypt at the end? 210. It says God hastened. God hastened it because he, he counted the 400 from when Isaac was born. In one place the Torah says 430 from when God promised Abraham is going to have Isaac from the covenant. It's 430 years. And when Isaac was born, it was 400 years. But actually, when Yaakov came down to Egypt with his sons, when the Jewish family, entire Jewish family, descended into Egypt, and that's what Yaakov hints. Yaakov tells the tribes, when they tell them they should go, they should go down to Egypt to buy bread, they ran out of straw, wheat. So he uh, ran out of wheat. He says, Redu Shama. Redu, Rashi says, numerical value of 210. He was hinting, you're going to be in Egypt, we're going to go down for 210 years. But God hastened it. It's called God hastened the redemption. Why did God hasten the redemption? If they were intended to be there for 400 years, why didn't God let them elevate all of the sparks? Because if they would have, had they elevated all the sparks, that would have been it. Mashiach would have come. That would have been it. The first, that would have been the first and final redemption, the first and final exile, the first and final redemption. They would have marched with Moses straight into the land of Israel, they would have received the Torah, and then marched straight into the land of Israel. And the answer is, God had to go to plan B. The reason is because the Jews in Egypt were so assimilated, as the Zohar says, that they reached 49 levels of impurity. Had they remained in Egypt for another split second, they would have been lost forever. They were steeped in idolatry. The Egyptians were idolaters, and the Jews were idolaters. They were addicted to idolatry. The tree of the Jewish family was almost uprooted at the root, at the root, at the source. They were hanging on by a thread. And Hashem, out of, out of His mercy, had to abort His plan A and had to go to plan B. 
said, I have no choice. I have to yank the Jews out of here. They're not going to last. It's too much. They can't take it. They can't handle it anymore. They've accomplished tremendous. They've accomplished a lot. Out of 288 sparks, they did elevate 202 sparks, which is incredible. Which is why that generation were a generation of spiritual giants. They had the ability to elevate in, in, in such a short time period. Time span. They were able to elevate 288. They were, they were giants. Also, the suffering was also monstrous. Because don't forget, there's nothing like the first time a person, God forbid, suffers a tragedy. By the second time, you get used to it already. Or you're more used to it. The first time is, 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 is beyond... The Jewish people were proud people. They were the, the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, world-renowned figures, spiritual giants, leaders acknowledged by the whole world, wealthy billionaires at, each, at some point in their lives, each of them, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, were billionaires. Nothing was left. <laughs> we didn't inherit any of that. So here they were a proud family of leaders, world-renowned leaders, spiritual giants, mystics, political leaders, powerful leaders, wealthy leaders, and all of a sudden, they're treated like a concentration camp. The Holocaust. Not for four years. 86 years. The entire Jewish family. Not like during the Holocaust, half of the Jewish people were safe. In America, in England, in Israel. The entire Jewish family, a proud family, a family of princes, Joseph's brothers, Joseph, the king of the world. Jacob, who was recognized and honored by the entire Egypt. And here, slaves, servants, making straw, making bricks, building, building pyramids. It was a very big blow, humiliation, denigration. And this went on for so long. So you can imagine the pain. Talk about pain and suffering. It was a tremendous pain and suffering. But as a result, they accomplished, they managed to elevate 202 of the 288 sparks. But they couldn't wait to finish the job. So Hashem had to yank them out of Egypt. Which explains why we still have, why the exile, the redemption, was not a complete redemption. It was a complete redemption at the time. But it was not a total, complete redemption. It explains why we still went back into exile. We reverted back into exile. It explains why we have poverty. It explains why we have a wicked son, a wicked child. And that's what we say. Hey, lach ma'anya, this is the bread of affliction. It's the same bread of affliction. We're still dealing with the same. We still have to elevate the spark. We're still in exile. We still haven't completed our mission. Which explains why we say in the very first segment, after the question, the beginning of the answer, the beginning of the response, we say, we were servants to Pare in Egypt, and then God took us out with a strong and mighty hand. And if God would not have taken us out of Egypt, we and our children, our grandchildren, would still be serving Pare in Egypt. Really? We and our children, thousands of years later, would still be serving our parents in Egypt? Why? It's not like exile is a normal state. That's normal. A Jew should be in exile. <laughs> why should the Jew... Why is that a natural thing? Oh, of course. If God wouldn't take us out forever and ever, our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren, forever and ever, we would be slaves in Egypt. It's so unnatural. Why, why should a Jew be a slave? God said he'd be a slave for 400 years. But thousands of years later, if God didn't take us out then, we would still be serving Paro and our children, our grandchildren. What he means to say is... Because if God in His mercy did not yank us out of Egypt, we would remain in Egypt until we finished the job. Obviously, we still didn't finish the job, so we would, Mashiach isn't here yet, the redemption hasn't happened yet. 
So we and our children, our grand, we would still be in Egypt. But Hashem and His infinite mercy fast-forwarded the whole process and took us out of Egypt early, prematurely in a certain sense, early. We weren't ready. We weren't worthy, we weren't ready, but He took us out anyway, out of His great, great mercy for us. And He saved the whole project. He salvaged the whole project because had He not taken us out, that would have been the end of it all. The Jewish people would have been lost and assimilated forever. As it is, only a fifth of the Jewish people left Egypt. Four-fifths of the Jews died out in Egypt. They were so assimilated. They were, so, they were more Egyptian than the Egyptian. They would rather be slaves in Egypt than be a proud and free people and independent and, and leave Egypt. That's how, that's how the inner darkness they suffered. So as it is, with all the miracles, and all the, they still would rather be part of Egyptian culture rather than belong to those people, you know, those Jews. Those, and uh, so you can imagine the darkness of Egypt, how dark it was, spiritually dark it was. So if Gashem in His infinite mercy would not yank us out, we would all have been lost forever. That would have been the end of the Jewish, the Jewish problem. So that's what we say. That's why he explains why we still have poverty. And that's why we're still in exile. And that's why we still have a son, a Russia, a wicked one, a rebel, a self-hating Jew. Because the redemption was incomplete. So why are we celebrating? What's the great joy? What's the great simcha? But nevertheless, we're confident that although today here we're sitting in exile, but next year we're going to be in the land of Israel. Although we are servants, but next year we're going to be free. Because we have confidence that Mashiach is going to come. It's not a question of if, it's not a question of maybe, inevitably Mashiach is going to come. And it's that hope that the exodus of Egypt gave us, that perennial hope. You'll ask, doctors will tell you that Jewish patients are the most optimistic patients in the world. It's so deeply ingrained in the Jewish psyche. The exodus from Egypt ingrained in us that change is not only possible, but change for the better is inevitable. The entire theme of the entire Torah is the belief in change. That change for the better is possible and change for the better is inevitable and that we are the agents of change. We don't sit passively. We are active participants. We can, fa- we can facilitate, we can hasten, we can fast forward that change. The exodus from Egypt indelibly impressed upon us, etched into our being, into our psyche, the belief and the hope of change, of redemption. The exodus from Egypt itself was a very dramatic change and transformation. In one split second, when Hashem took them out of Egypt, in one split second, they moved from the 49 levels of depth of impurity at the edge of the 50th level of impurity, and in one split second, God took him out of Egypt to the exact opposite, to holiness. And 49 days later, 50 days later, they stood at Sinai with a rendezvous with Hashem, face to face with the essence of God, reaching the 50th level of holiness. So uh, the Jew experienced change. They felt, they experienced in their own personal lives the dramatic transformation. Here they were slaves, a single slave couldn't leave Egypt. In one split second, they marched out in broad daylight. No one could stop them. Here they were spiritually in the 49 levels of impurity. In one split second, it was a, a quantum leap, a total transformation. So for a Jew, the whole I belief that change is possible is not a belief, it's not an abstract concept. 
It's a living, breathing reality. Our ancestors lived through it. They were the living examples of the possibility of change, even when things seem to be hopeless and you're at the nadir and at the lowest level, at the, at the edge. It's one minute before, before midnight. <laughs> and then midnight strikes, and one split second, everything, everything turns around. 180 degrees. Dramatic transformation. So the Jewish people are a living proof of the miracle of change. And that message of hope and faith, this is what the Pesach is all about. We live that message of hope and faith. We, have opti- we are optimistic. Even when the Jews sat in the ghetto in the concentration camp, they celebrated Pesach. All around them, everything was dark and oppressive and suffering and harsh. But no one could extinguish the flame, the spark inside of us. And Pesach, every Jew feels like a king, like royalty. Externally, they may crush us and we may be under oppression, but internally, we're free. Because we believe, we have hope, we have faith, we trust. We're optimistic, we're hopeful that change for the better and the impossible can happen. And change for the better is not only a possibility, it's an inevitability. Because the core and the essence of this world is good, the core and the essence of this world is godly. And inevitably that will emerge, that will surface, and the whole world will be transformed into a Garden of Eden. So that's what we're celebrating on Pesach. So we end off that yes, this is the bread that our parents ate. We're, we're just as impoverished as they were. We're still in exile. We're suffering from impoverishment. Physical impoverishment, material impoverishment, and spiritual impoverishment. Who is a poor person? The rabbis say, whoever is immature, who's lacking in das, who's lacking in maturity. That's the truly impoverished person. A person could be a billionaire and have a billion dollars in his bank account, and yet he's a child, an immature baby. He's impoverished emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually. Yes, externally he can live in a mansion where he's impoverished. Who is a wealthy person? Someone who is wealthy of spirit, rich in spirit, rich in maturity, psychologically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally. That's a rich person. So this is the same bread of impoverishment that our parents ate. Because we're still suffering from that impoverishment. There are poor people. There are people who are impoverished mentally and emotionally and spiritually. There's a wicked one, a rebel, who doesn't appreciate his Judaism, a self-hating Jew, which is the biggest impoverishment of all. You're a billionaire and you, you are embarrassed by your own self. You can't live with your own self. You're not at peace with your own, with your own essence, with your own nature. You're alienated from your own nature. Is there a deeper exile than that? When was the last time you met a self-hating Irishman, a self-hating Italian? It's a uniquely Jewish phenomenon, a self-hating Jew. How impoverished is that? Is there a deeper exile, a person who's alienated from himself, estranged from his own self, his own soul, his own core, his own essence, his own brothers and sisters, his own people, his own land, his own history, his own destiny, his own God, his own Torah? There's no greater impoverishment. And we have four sons, but there's a fifth son. The fifth son, the fifth son, at least the four sons are sitting at the table. There's a fifth son who's not even sitting, not even sitting at the Seder table. The Russia is at least rebelling. He's fighting, he's rebelling, he's arguing, but he's there, he's present, he's there. It's part of the picture. There's a fifth son who's not even present. Because it's a process. The first generation that came from Eastern Europe, from the shtetl, you know, the grandfather came, was a man in his 50s and his 60s, with a long white beard, came to America, he didn't give up his Judaism. 50, 60 year old, you don't change your lifestyle. There were thousands of Arishals all over America. That was the first generation of immigrants that came. They were in shul, and their children were playing baseball outside in Shabbos. Went to public school, 
No Jewish schools, hardly any Jewish schools, gave them public education. And they were proud of their children, but they're becoming Americanized, speak without an accent. So the first generation is the Chacham, the wise one, that kept the tradition. The next generation is the generation that rebelled, that threw it all off, threw it all away. Then you have the third generation. The third generation, simple. Still grew up with Babi and Zaydi, remembers how they lit the Shabbos candle, remembers how they kept kosher, remembers how Zaydi would take him to shul, would put on tefillin in the morning. But this doesn't know anything, because in his home, it wasn't the living reality, he didn't live with it. It was, it was a pleasant memory, so it's pretty simple, a simple impression. You know, the Yiddish jokes, the Yiddish humor. And then you have the fourth generation. The fourth generation doesn't even know anything, doesn't know to ask. All the, the only memories it has is, is from, from, from his grandparents, which were already the, the rebellious generation, the generation that left it all. But at least he's sitting at the Seder, he's carrying on, the, he's sitting there. By the time you get to the fifth generation, there is no fifth generation. There's nobody around. He doesn't even show up at the Seder. There's no fifth generation reform. It doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. By that time, Judaism was long gone and forgotten. So is there a greater impoverishment than that? A Jew who's so alienated, a Jew who's not even sitting at the Seder, doesn't know from anything. So we're saying, this is the bread that our parents ate. We're still, we're still in the middle. We haven't finished. We're still in the middle of business. Mashiach hasn't come yet. We haven't concluded. But nevertheless, we're still hopeful and optimistic. That although we're still in exile, but next year, it doesn't mean we have to wait till next year. It means it, means it can happen immediately. And by this time next year, Mashiach will be here. And that's how we conclude at the end of the first part. And we say we have to be thankful and grateful to Hashem for all the miracles that He's done to us. We say, how much more so if to thank Hashem that He took us out of Egypt, the 15, the 15 steps, the 15 things that we're grateful for. And then He concludes that He built for us, He entered us, he entered us into the land of Israel, and He built for, our, for us His house of choice, to forgive all our sins. A very unusual choice of a name for the temple. Usually we refer to the temple as Beit HaMikdash, the holy house. Beit HaBchira, the, the chosen house, is a very unusual name. It's not a common name. Why does the Haggadah like, end this whole segment with this? Like God built uh, for us His chosen home in order to forgive and all our sins. Because He's answering this question that's bothering us. How do we know that this will come to an end? Or it's going to come to an end in our lifetime. It's going to come to an end by the time next year. Or today, tonight. Maybe this will go on and on. Maybe this impoverishment will be grappling and wrestling with the exile and with the darkness of the exile. And maybe this will go on and on. We have to elevate the sparks and the sparks still need refinement. How do we know this is ever going to end? Or is it going to end in our lifetime? Why the confidence? Why the optimism? Why the joy? We're celebrating tonight. We're joyful tonight because... We're confident that inevitably the world will change and uh, the ultimate will experience the ultimate and complete, final redemption. And the answer is because God chose us. Because we are the chosen people. And there's a difference between choice. God chose us at Mount Sinai. Before Mount Sinai, the Jewish people were called the children of God. Children of God, parents and children have an 
absolute unconditional love and unconditional relationship. And that's why the Jewish people, God took the Jews out of Egypt, even though they weren't worthy, even though they were just as steeped and addicted to idolatry, just like the Egyptians. God says, they're my children. A parent can't help but love, love their children. It's unconditional love. So therefore, he redeemed the Jewish people. But this redemption was only effective for the Jews who believed. Four-fifths of the Jewish people, those who didn't believe, died out in Egypt. Why? Because although a parent and a child, a parent loves a child unconditionally, what if the child comes and spits in his parent's face, slaps him in the face, punches him in the face? At that moment, that relationship becomes inoperable. The parent can't help him. Hey, I love you, but if you deny that I'm your father... It's like the example, example the rabbis give that the parent was carrying his two sons on his shoulder. And one son t- says to the other, by the way, did you, did you see our, our father around? He got so angry, he threw, threw them to the ground. What do you mean? I'm carrying you. You're sitting on my lap. I'm your father. When you, you're so brazen and chutzpahdik. You're denying I'm your father. And I'm, you know, then, then you lose your whole, your whole interest. I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. You're denying that I'm your father. You're slapping me in the face. You're spitting me in the face. And then... I can't help you. Even if I want to, I can't help you. Yes, I love you unconditionally, but, but if you deny that relationship, there's nothing I can do for you. So therefore, God redeemed the Jewish people as a whole. But individuals, those who did not have faith, they were lost in Egypt. But this was before Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, something unique happens. God chose us. We were born as a people. Choice is something very personal. When you choose... It's not just nature. The parent-child relationship is nature. It's natural. It's an unconditional connection. Choice, you can choose to go against your nature. What makes choice special? Because you chose it. That's what makes it special. It has nothing to do with the object that's chosen. It's you invested in that choice. It's special because you chose it. You invested in it. And that's why it becomes special. So it's personal. And that's why choice touches a person in a very deep place. So at Mount Sinai, God chose us. Our relationship to God was elevated. It's not just that we're the children of God. We're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're born with the Holy Soul. We're born with the Jewish soul. We have that absolute relationship and absolute connection. That's good. But at Mount Sinai, we reached a much higher level. God chose us. He invested himself in each and every one of us. The Ten Commandments, God spoke in the singular, not in the plural. He's not addressing the Jewish community as a whole. He's addressing every individual, you and I, every one of us, individually. With thunder and lightning, He's speaking to every one of us. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Chava, Mendel, Yankel, Shmerel, Beryl, you, I'm talking to you. You, I am your God, I am choosing you, you are my chosen. Since God invested Himself, He personally chose us. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do, what we choose, we can't affect that choice. So even if we spit God in the face, even if we punch Him in the face, and we're punching ourselves in the face, and we're self-hating Jew, God forbid, and we deny our Torah and deny our truth and deny our God and deny our history and deny our destiny and deny who we are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect it one iota. As all the non-Jews of the world will always remind the Jew, no matter what, a true is a Jew, is a Jew. When was the last time you heard anyone say, a Christian is a Christian is a Christian? 
A Muslim is a Muslim is a Muslim. A Buddha is a Buddha is a Buddha. It's not true. An atheistic Muslim, it's like oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. But an atheist Jew is not a Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Hitler sent everyone to the gas chambers. It didn't matter if you were a Hasidic Jew, if you were a Reformed Conservative Jew, or if you uh, a self-hating Jew, an atheist. A Jew is a Jew. So this is unique. This is what happened at Mount Sinai. And that's the message that we tell the wicked son. If you read the, story, the message of the wicked son, what's our answer to the wicked son? That if you were in Egypt, you would never be redeemed. Now that's a very inspiring message. I mean, really. I mean, finally, thank God your son is sitting at the table. I mean, you could have, could have bolted from the door. You could have joined the fifth son. He's sitting at the table. He agreed to come to the Seder. You really want to inspire him. You really want to get to him. So you tell him, you're such a wicked, you're such a bum, you're such a lowlife, such a good-for-nothing, a no-goodnik, that if you were in Egypt, you would have died. You've never made it. That's, that's, really, that's really inspiring. That's the message I need to hear. It's really going to get to me. But if you look carefully at the wording, look at what we tell the child. If you were there, back then and there, you would not have made it. Because back then and there, four-fifths of the Jewish people died out. The individuals died out. God redeemed the Jewish community. If you felt part of the community, if you didn't feel part of the community, you were so alienated, you were so self-hating, that you felt closer, closer to Egypt, you felt more of an Egyptian than you did as a Jew. You were embarrassed, ashamed of your Jewishness. And you felt closer and more proud of being Egyptian, even after all the plagues and all the miracles. And yet the darkness of your soul was so dark that you felt closer to the Egyptians than you felt your fellow Jew then you would have died out but today is different today even the self-hating Jew even the Jew who's lost not a single Jew will be left behind not only will God redeem the whole but God is also going to redeem every individual Jew the most assimilated Jew the most intermarried Jew every last Jew will be redeemed and will reconnect and will come back home and find this place find this neshama and reconnect his father in heaven reconnect to the Jewish people every last one God promises it and that's why, that's why we conclude this segment with God built for us the house of choice because God chose us therefore inevitably this will lead to the forgiveness of all the sins because this connection this relationship is unconditional this relationship is it's it's above a, pro, a reproach. No one could touch that place. No one could affect that place. Even we don't have the freedom of choice to affect or to diminish or to harm this relationship. And therefore, inevitably, every single one of us will overcome the cover-up or the layers that cover up, the sins that cover up, that block our soul from expressing itself. And every single one of us will find our way home and our neshama and all our soul and all its purity will emerge and surface and reconnect. This is the hope and the faith and the optimism that we get from the Seder. When we eat the matzah, the matzah actually gives us strength. The matzah strengthens us. It strengthens our faith and it allows our faith to emerge into surface. So that's why we sit down to the Seder even though we know we're still in exile. And we know that there's still impoverishment, still poverty. And we know that there's still suffering. And we know that there's still a wicked son, a self-hating Jew. And all the symptoms of exile, but nevertheless... We celebrate, we feel like celebrating, because we know that something special is about to happen, not only could happen, but inevitably will happen, 
And at any moment, just like God took the Jews out of Egypt and it was a total surprise, no one expected it. And so too, God will take us out of this exile. It's also going to be a big surprise because no one really expects it. Even though we're hoping and waiting and yearning and anticipating and rolling up our sleeves and actively doing something about it, they hasten it, but it will come as a surprise. Right? If Mashiach came this moment, you won't be surprised? Honestly. <laughs> you won't be shocked. <laughs> Even though we've only been talking about it for the last 2,000 years. Cancel my plans now. <laughs> You're not going to tell Mashiach, wait, wait to have plans come a little later. Uh, it'll take us by surprise. Because Mashiach is something so spectacular, something so unbelievably good, beyond our comprehension. What actually comes, it will, it will just blow us off our feet. But it's going to happen. But what about the missing sparks? Don't they? So firstly, the good news is that the Rebbe made a statement that no one ever made it before in Jewish history for the simple reason that it never happened before in Jewish history. The Rebbe made a statement, I believe it was uh, in 1991. He made a declaration for the first time in Jewish history that all the holy sparks have been elevated. All 288 sparks have been elevated. Mission accomplished. Period. And our mission today is to be ready to receive and to welcome Mashiach. We have to polish everything. And our uniform is polished. Our buttons are polished. And we're ready to welcome and to greet and to welcome the new era. To be, we have to stand erect and ready to welcome the blessings and welcome the new era that we're about to make a transition into. He always would tell us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like our generation. We are a transitional generation. That we are the last generation of exile and we will be the first generation of redemption. We are the last generation of the old order and we are the first generation, we will be the first generation of the new order. A totally transformed world a world that it's hard for us to even conceive. You know, it's, it's almost, almost funny, laughable. People talk about uh, peak oil or the world is running out of resources. Um, it's laughable because we haven't even scratched the surface of our resources. We don't even know what depth. We, we, haven't, we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't discovered anything yet. It's that this world, we are going to live and experience a world which is healthy and clean. You won't need any of that uh, dirty stuff. A world which is clean, a world which is healthy and wholesome. We haven't even, we haven't even scratched the surface. What we're seeing today is nothing. There's so much Hashem created the world, He created the paradise, the potential for a paradise. Not only potential, when He created the world, it actually was a paradise. Everything that we're discovering today is just inklings or glimpses of the potential that the world has. All the sciences that we have today is almost a joke in comparison to the science that's out there, the true potential. We haven't even scratched the surface. But that's part of the chametz. Part of the chametz, chametz comes from arrogance. A person, in order to launch, to start your spiritual journey, spiritual freedom, you have to eat the matzah. Matzah represents humility. Because humility is the beginning of all freedom. If, you, if a person feels inadequate, a person feels hungry and yearning and feels inadequate, then you're open to change. 
But if a person feels arrogant and complacent and self-satisfied and content and egotistical, that's chametz. That, that gets in the way of growth. You can't grow. If a person feels so happy with himself and so complacent and so satisfied with himself and smug, that's the killer of all spiritual growth. The first step of spiritual growth is that a person has to be open. It reminds me, I think it was 1908, the head of the patent office in America, I forget his name, um, wanted to shut down the patent office. 1908. Because he said the, mor- the immortal words, quote, he says, everything that could be invented <laughs> has already been invented. <laughs> this was 1908. And you know, his re- he has re- his reincarnation in every generation. You have fools today. He also wrote a book recently that everything, all the great ideas, all the great theories, everything that could be discovered has already been discovered. Whatever we're doing now is just mopping up. In the 90s, there was a big book that came out. There must be a reincarnation of that, uh, of that person. What fools? Everything that could be discovered. We haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even, we're just beginning to decode the DNA. We are stuck in technology that's so ancient, that's so limited. We have, we, we have technology, potentially technology could be so advanced. We haven't even scratched the surface. And the only thing that's stopping us is greed and arrogance and complacency. But the potential that God put into this world is infinite. There's enough food to feed every human being abundantly. We have the potential. Or we're on the verge of discovering the potential. The human mind has such capacity. And God has placed so much potential. It's greed and ego and arrogance that gets in the way. Who's stopping the development of all the technology that we need to live a, live a decent life? Pure greed and arrogance. Because the powers to be who are not interested in allowing us to, to get there. But the potential? So all this fear-mongering that we better have stop, stop having children, we better have population control because the world can't feed, the world is becoming overburdened. We haven't even scratched the surface. So the, 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 um, the hope and the trust and the faith, we know that we are on the verge. Our generation, we are the transitional generation. We are going to witness a world that's so spectacular. A world that's at peace, a world that's wholesome, a world that's rich, a world that's healthy and wholesome at every level. A world that's godly and good. Six billion people are all going to live moral, ethical, and spiritual lives. It's going to be a wonderful world. We are on the verge and the threshold of that world. This is what the Seder tells us. Even though we sit down and there's a poverty and there's impoverishment and spiritual impoverishment, impoverishment and psychological impoverishment, but we have full faith and full hope and confidence. And if that's true in every generation, how much more so today, when the Rebbe already testified, and the Rebbe has the authority to make such a statement, only the Rebbe can make such a statement, that we've already elevated all 288 sparks. No one else said it before. You know why? Because it never happened before. By 1991, it happened. All of the sparks were elevated, and our mission is done. Mission accomplished. All bases are loaded. We're in the ninth inning. All bases are loaded, and now we're just waiting for the home run which you and I can hit any, some, any Jew anywhere in the world. By doing one last mitzvah, they could be the one that, have the, that has the merit to hit the last home run and bring us, bring us all home to Jerusalem and bring it's us all home analogy. to the land, land of Israel. And that's why, that's why we're sitting in Yiddish, sitting on Shpilkes. 
You're sitting at the edge of your seat. Could you imagine the ninth inning, a real, real good game, juicy game, all the bases are loaded. You're sitting at the edge of your seat, the Mashiach coming, you can't wait, you can't, uh, you hope, anticipate, because it's any moment. Imagine you're reading the most th- exciting novel, thrilling thriller you ever read in your life. And you come to the last chapter. And this chapter is going to bring the whole book together. Suddenly you're going to, you're going to discover everything will be answered in this chapter. You'll be sitting at the edge of the seat. You're going to forget about everything. No distraction. You're going, to be, you're going to be focusing. You're going to devour that chapter. That's the time that we live in today. We are at the last moment of exile. Before the first moment of redemption. We are the generation that's going to witness a miracle that will surpass and exceed the miracle of the Exodus of Egypt. When Mashiach will come, we're hardly even going to mention the Exodus of Egypt because it, won't, it will pale in comparison. It will be like a candle in comparison to the sun. What does a candle add to the sun? Mashiach is going to be so spectacular. The transformation of six billion people, the transformation of earth, of this world, that this world will become a peaceful place, a wholesome place, a godly place, a good place, a genuine place, an authentic place. And we are going to witness and experience it will be something so dramatic, so beyond our conception, that we are sitting at the edge of our seat. We can't wait. So for us, the Pesach, the Seder, the Pesach is something very actual. This is not something ancient. We're celebrating something that happened 3,300 years ago in Egypt. This is something that's happening now. It's real. It's redemption. We're celebrating redemption. And after 3,320 years, we're finally ready for the ultimate redemption. We've already went through redemption, exile, redemption, exile, redemption, exile. Yes, although that redemption affected us permanently, permanently etched into our psyche, that hope, that faith, that optimism, that belief in the, uh, in the possibility of change and more so in the, in the inevitability of change, and that we are the agents of that change. We... We, are, we participate in facilitating that change by, by participating in the Seder, by doing the mitzvot and celebrating our Jewishness and celebrating our connection and renewing our connection with Hashem and the rebirth of our people and our rebirth each and every day, each and every Pesach. We celebrate our birthday. We're celebrating our birth. It's a birthday party. So we facilitate it. But how much more so? In today's day and age, the Seder is so immediate, so meaningful, so actual, such an actual reality. Anyone who has ears, if you open your ears, you can hear. And open your eyes, you can see that we're living in a very special time. We are living in a very special time, a very special generation. We are living like in a twilight zone. And that's why it's very, on one hand, there are tragedies that are unprecedented. There are painful experiences that we've never experienced before in our history. The most painful of which is the fact that the Jew is exiling themselves. Here we're celebrating redemption and freedom and pride and dignity. In the annals of human history, there isn't a single nation on earth that ever exiled itself. It's unprecedented. It's one thing if the Romans exiled us from Egypt, from Israel, the Babylonians, the Greeks, Assyrians. But for a Jew to exile himself out of his own country and to discuss giving up his holiest city, his capital. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an exile. It's such a spiritual exile. So spiritually oppressive. It's the 50th gate of impurity. It, there's, never been, there's never been such a, a darkness. It's a twilight zone. But at the other hand, we also experience brilliant flashes of light that we've never seen before. 
illuminations, holiness, goodness, kindness, things that we've never seen before, unprecedented. The largest educational project in Jewish history. Look at the Rebbe did. The Rebbe's birthday is coming up next week. The largest educational project in Jewish history. 4,000 Chabad houses. Every Jew feels welcome and can come and learn at their own pace, at their own level, and can grow in the Yiddishkeit and feel at home without being judged, accepted without labels. I mean, such brilliant flashes of light, of, of, of love, of selflessness, of kindness, of goodness. It's just amazing. It's unprecedented. Because we're living at the threshold. We are the transitional generation. We are the, th- we are the twilight right before the coming of Shabbos. We are the last chapter of that novel, that fascinating thriller. We are then, all the bases are loaded. We're any moment. So it's very confusing. There's a lot of darkness. On the other hand, there's so much Mashiach Dika light. Things which are just like the Jews before they left Egypt. At the last moment. What was the last plague before the last final plague? The plague of darkness. The plague of darkness was so thick, the darkness was so thick, you can cut it with a knife. And yet the Torah says at the same time, for the Jewish people, it was brilliantly illuminated. Simultaneously, here you have such thick darkness, and at the same time you have such brilliant flashes of light, which was, which was messianic, which was miraculous. Simultaneously. And the Medrash says it was like x-ray vision, they were able to see everything. So how do you have simultaneously such darkness? Such decadence, corruption, degeneration that the world has never seen before. And at the same time, you have such flashes of brilliance, of holiness, of goodness. Of, at the same time, side by side. So it's a, very, it's a twilight zone. It's a very confusing time. But don't be fooled. Realize that we're living in a very, very special time. And it's the last holdout of the old order. This is it. It's the last hurrah. It's all over, and they know it's all over. And that's why they're coming with the last, it's the last gasp. The last gasp. You know, before the wrestler, it's a wrestling match, in good and evil, before the wrestler collapses, the loser collapses, they rally, the last hurrah, they rally all their strength. You know, unfortunately, many people, before they pass away, a few days before, the family thinks they're getting better, they look so good, there's like a healthy spurt. And that's, unfortunately, many times, it's the last hurrah before, because they feel that this is it, so they rally the deepest strength that they have, the last ounce of strength that they have, the last ounce of energy. And then it's all over. So evil knows that the curtain is about to go down. And evil, it's all over. The game is over. If this is what evil has come down to, blowing yourself up, this is scraping the bottom of the barrel. There's no ideology, there's no future, there's no vision, there's no thought. It's pure, vicious evil, absolute evil. Irredeemable evil. If this is what evil has come to, We've reached a point. Communism has collapsed. Fascism has collapsed. What has evil come to today? Blowing up men, women, and children in buses. This is what evil has come down to. This is where we're at. It's the end. It's over. Scraping at the bottom of the barrel. Don't be depressed or dejected. Realize what times we're living in. It's all over. It's finished. So it's the last hurrah. So the old order is showing its last strength, its last ounce of strength. Don't be intimidated. Yes. And they're expressing their last ounce of strength in Israel. We see it all playing out in Israel. The biggest corruption, the biggest, the biggest disappointment. In the holiest land in Israel. But don't be dejected and don't be disappointed. It's the last Torah. They're showing the true colors. They're exposing and revealing themselves. And it's all over. It's finished. In a moment, goodness will triumph. And the curtain will come down in evil. And goodness will triumph. 
gloriously triumphant. And the Jewish dawn, the sun, is about to break out. So we enter into this Pesach with excitement. This is very real. This is very actual. We're not just reading a story that happened in the past. This is a process that's been ongoing since then. 3,320 years we've been leaving Egypt. Every day we've been leaving Egypt, we've been coming closer to the ultimate, the ultimate goal. Don't forget the original theme, the original goal, the ultimate goal was to redeem the whole world. To make this world once again into a Garden of Eden that Hashem says, I feel at home here. I del- Hashem, it's Hashem's delight, pleasure. And we are at the threshold of fulfilling that purpose, which is the purpose of the whole of creation. We're in the last chapter. The ninth inning, all the bases are loaded. Any moment we're going to hit that home run. So we enter Pesach with, with excitement. This is so real. This is so actual. This is so immediate. It's so personal, so relevant. And we are living through these times. Rabbi Akiva didn't live through it. The Baal Shem Tev didn't live through it. And we, of all generations, the midgets, spiritual midgets of all generations, we are going to be the ones who are going to live through and be the first generation of redemption. And that's the story in the Haggadah. The Haggadah tells us Rabbi Yelazah ben Azariah said, he says, I am like 70 years old. Why did he say I'm like 70 years old? Because the truth was he was only 18 years old. And they wanted a point, they appointed him as president of the Jewish Supreme Court. But he told his wife, I'm only 18 years old. I have a black beard, a small black beard. I would have a black beard. The president of the esteemed Jewish Supreme Court has to have a white beard. He says a miracle happened. He woke up the next morning, his beard turned white. The question is, his objection wasn't because he had a black beard. He could have gone and dyed his beard white. His objection was, I'm only 18. I'm inexperienced. I don't have the wisdom and the maturity. You know, the wisdom has to be, it's like, it's like, it's like a, you have to pickle the wisdom. You have to, it's maturity. Someone who lived for 70 years, there's a maturity, there's a settling. There's a, how can an 18-year-old lead the entire Jewish people and be the president of the Supreme Court? What did it help that his beard turned white? And the answer is no. The beard turned white revealed that he had the wisdom of a 70-year-old. He, had, he was 18 years old, and his passport, he was 18 years old. But Jewish years are not measured by a passport. In your passport, you can be 90 years old. But psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, you're a little baby. You never grew up. You're still a 5-year-old. You never grew up emotionally, psychologically. He was 18 years old, Abel Azar, was 18 years old, and yet he had the wisdom and the maturity of a 70-year-old. Why? Because the, the Kabbalists tell us Abel Azar was a reincarnation. He had the soul of Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet passed away at the age of 52. So do your math. 52 plus 18 equals 70. That's what he says, I'm like a 70-year-old. We believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is a Jewish concept. But our concept of reincarnation is a little different. Our concept of reincarnation is not so much that you come with the baggage of the previous lifetimes. On the contrary. You come with the positive of the previous lifetimes. Because the baggage is long gone, forgotten, and forgiven. And that's why we see, why are people so nostalgic for the past? You think the past was any better than the present? The past was harsh and brutish and nasty and bitter. But yet, with the passing of time, the negativity loses its edge. It it dulls the sharpness of the negativity. While good things deepens with time. It ripens, it deepens. So as time goes on, the negativity fades. 
at least the, the painful edges of it is dulled. While the, the, the goodness grows deeper with time. And that's the nature, because good is essential. Good is a substance. Good is reality. Negativity is merely the void, like darkness. Darkness is merely the void. Goodness is like light. It's the substance. Goodness endures. Evil is temporary. It doesn't have a real existence. It can make, it can, it can make a lot of trouble and it could destroy. But look, where are the Nazis today? Where's the thousand-year Reich? Gone, forgotten, disappeared, crushed from history. And where's the Jew? 3,800 years later, never left the front pages of history. Goodness is indestructible. Goodness only grows and deepens with time. Evil is temporary. Because it has no substance. Like darkness. The void. And that's why the good things that we did in our past, that we experienced, stays with us forever. And grows deeper and more meaningful with time. The negativity, after a while, it fades, it dulls, the pain is dulled, you forget about it. So all the negativity of the soul in the previous lifetime, the soul has long atoned for that, has wiped, cleansed, has been cleansed of that negativity. A, through the process of suffering, B, through the process of Teshuvah, 3, through Yom Kippur, 4, through the process of death itself. Death is the ultimate atonement. And then the different experiences that the soul experiences after death. It goes through different purification processes. All of these things purify the soul of the stain, any stain that the soul may have acquired. So those stains are washed and the soul was pure. But the goodness that the soul has accomplished, all the mitzvot, all the charity, all the tzedakah, all the selflessness, the kindness, all the tears, the sincerity, the love, the good things, that stays forever. So when the soul is reincarnated into the body, you come with all the strength of your previous lifetime. Not the baggage of your previous lifetime. The strength of your previous lifetime. And that's why it's important for us to know the concept of reincarnation. It's not important for us to know who we were in a previous lifetime. If it was important, we would know that information. We don't know it. It's not relevant. What is important for us to know is that we have the strength of all the, our previous lifetimes, all that we have accomplished in our previous life. So yes, we're not perfect. We have to still do something. We have to polish a button. We have to fill some up. And you wonder to yourself, where am I going to get the strength to overcome all the negativity from within and from without, all the obstacles and all the difficulties? It feels overwhelming at times. But when you remember, you remind yourself that we are reincarnation of a previous generation, a previous generation... So we have all the benefit of all that positive energy that's stored in the soul, that the sword has accomplished and acquired over all previous lifetimes. That strength helps us to accomplish what we have to accomplish. When we remember that we come from 3,800 years of strength, superhuman strength, courageous strength, where did our parents and ancestors have the strength to go through thick and thin, fire and water, maintain their loyalty and their faithfulness and the Yiddishkeit, to celebrate a Seder through fire and water? If they had the strength, we have the strength. So if you look, at it may appear to be impossible. We expect Israel to be strong and to tell it like it is and to tell the truth and to act in a dignified way. But look at the pressure. It's such overwhelming pressure from the State Department, from the President of the United States and from the media and the world media and from the universities and the, and the cultural elite and, and peer pressure from all sides. How do you expect little tiny Israel to stand up to all this, all this powerful pressure? But if you remember that we have all the energy and all the strength from all our previous lifetimes and all the previous generations that are with us, then you have all the strength you need. So that's why it's important for us to know that, that we, we have a root, we have a source. 
And that energy is there for our benefit. We just have a few minutes, maybe open for questions. Anyone has any questions on the Seder or on the Agada or... I have too many questions, I can't. Start one. <laughs> Those are usually the best questions. We actually had, um, if you go online, something that we did on Pesach. We discussed the basics of Pesach, the meaning of matzah, the meaning of, of chametz, and the meaning of the word Pesach. And um, So this is like a follow-up, this discussion like a follow-up, a supplemental discussion. We talked about other, other, other themes. See, all the traditions I know, you know, all the basics of, of the Seder I grew up with, but all, so many of the things that you were discussing right now, I can do a terrific Seder and, and follow, you know, the Jewish law 100%, but it's everything else that... Right, that's right. That makes sense. That's the soul, that's that's the soul of Judaism that gives it flavor, that gives it the meaning, comes to life, and it makes it personal, it makes it relevant. Otherwise, how can you sit at a Seder and honestly relate to an event that happened 3,300 years ago? We're not in Egypt. We don't have frogs crawling around. Our water didn't turn into blood. I mean, unless you have a very healthy imagination, it's hard to really relate to the whole. It's so abstract. You know, ancestors were in Egypt and they were suffering. You know, it's a nice story, but that, that really you should come to life. It says they spend all night, the rabbis spend all night discussing it till, till dawn. But it's when you study Hasidus and it makes it personal relevant, then it comes to life as a, on a very personal level. So the Seder becomes very meaningful and then you can understand how they spend all night trying to relive the Seder and trying to relate to it and to connect with it and experience an exodus from Egypt. Because when we sit at the Seder, something very real happens that night. Whatever happened the original Seder, 3,320 years ago, that revelation, that intense revelation of God at midnight that caused this, 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 the world has never been the same, that caused the transformation, that crushed Egypt and simultaneously redeemed the Jew and, and gave birth to the Jewish people. And that whole thing happens each and every place of night. We feel it. Something special is happening inside of us. The fact we're sitting at a beautiful table and beautiful food is just an expression, a symptom of what's really going on inside. We have the ability to really achieve a breakthrough. Uh, we have the ability, the divine ability, to really open, open ourselves and achieve a breakthrough and leapfrog and, and, and leap over boundaries. And really, it's a very powerful, powerful night and it's very meaningful and relevant. And the matzah helps us. All of these things really help us accomplish and achieve it. So it's more, much more than just a ritual, a nice ritual, a nice custom, a nice memory. It's, it's, it's a very real thing and a very powerful thing.